Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 through 20. Hey, we have a couple back. I guess you, you guys are still on your honeymoon or you uh, we, they just got married just this last week. Don and Jan McDowell, would you stand? Just got married, came to church. Woo, good. And you guys are back from your honeymoon. (laughs) Woo. Come on up here and tell us about that. Okay, never mind. Maybe you better not do that. Good to have you with us uh, this morning. So we're studying through Habakkuk. We're going to look at uh, verses 4 through 20. And uh, it's a fun one today, our root problem. We're going to dive deep into our heart. Trusting in troubled times is this current teaching series. I need to tell you right up front, we did not get through the notes. And so don't get worried. Don't get panicked. We're only going to get through half of the notes, and we're going to finish up next week. I, I thought this message was too critical for us to try to cram it all in to today as we were kind of walking through this and unpacking it. And, and you will see very quickly as we work through this. The book of Habakkuk is teaching us how to trust God in troubled times. Now, whether your troubled times are individual or widespread, if you understand what Habakkuk says, you'll be ready for anything. And, uh, and we're going through troubled times, this economy, not as troubled as, as many throughout this world, but nonetheless, we still have troubled times, and no one really knows for sure if this troubled times is going to get worse or get better or what's going to go on, and so... It's really important that we deal with the reality that surrounds us and the potential reality that that we may find ourselves in. And God's Word, this is what I love about God's Word, it does not deny reality. God meets us in the midst of our reality, no matter how dark or gloomy it may be. And so Habakkuk is, is giving us some phenomenal insight as it relates to difficult times. And, and so far in chapter 1, we've got Habakkuk, he's complaining to God. And he's complaining about the injustices, the wickedness, the evilness of of God's people, Judah. And so God responds in a way that he doesn't quite think that, you know, maybe he should be responding. But God responds to him and says, okay, I am going to do something. I am doing something. In fact, I'm going to bring this nation, the Babylonians, and they're going to come and discipline Judah. And so you got Habakkuk complains, God responds, and then Habakkuk is, uh, boy, he just, he, he just knocks sideways with that, that information. And he's starting to struggle here. He's in anguish. And his big question here is, how can God discipline his people, Judah, with a nation more wicked? How can you do that, God? And so the first week of our study, we looked at this whole idea as where is God, you know, when, when he's silent? What's going on? Why is God silent? And... Uh, we learned through Habakkuk that there's, that there's something uh, much more difficult than, um, than when we're dealing with God. There's something much more difficult than disappointment with God, and that is disappointment without God, without God, absolutely. And, and that's the struggle. So here you've got Habakkuk. He's got this, this conditional, uh, or I'm sorry, unconditional faithful wrestling that's going on, this unconditional faithful wrestling with God, and he's disappointed with God, and yet at the same time, he understands grace, and grace in our interaction with God uh, gives us the safety and the security to be able to be honest with God, knowing he's not going to cut and run, he's not going to strike us dead. So you got Habakkuk sharing his heart with God, and at the same time, in this grace, he understands the significance that God places upon him. And so, though he's disappointed with God, he knows that there's no better place to be than to be with God with his disappointment, and he knows that no one has ever, ever understood him to the depths, and never will anyone love him to the heavens like God. So he's got this struggle going on. And as we were heading into chapter 2, we talked about waiting, and so we see him waiting, and we talked about that last week. And now we come to this section of, of, of chapter 2, how can God discipline his people, Judah, with a nation more wicked? And then God, God answers, he is aware of the sins of the Chaldeans, and they will not go unpunished, but Judah is guilty of the same offenses. 
And so, um, he says something here that I think it's really important for all of us. And, uh, and, and this is what it is. And, and this is what I know to be a fact, and I, I tend to fall prey to this, is that I think there's a truth that, that stands out in all of this, and that is religious people tend to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. Oh, by the way, all of us tend to be religious. That's the default mode in the human heart. You tend to be religious, and I tend to be religious. And we tend to divide the world into good guys, bad guys. And the Bible says there are no good guys. And so when Habakkuk says, God, how can you do this? You're going to discipline us with a more wicked nation than us? In essence, he's kind of like, hey, we're, we're bad, but we're not that bad. Kind of a little bit of what we all do. We all tend to do that. My wife uh, is terribly sick, and I haven't seen her this sick. Wow, it's been a decade or so since I've seen her this sick, really terribly sick. So can you imagine if I went in there and told her that uh, she is sick because she's got a lot of sin in her life? And if she had as much faith as me, she wouldn't be that sick. Praise God, hallelujah. So confess right now of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And, and by the way, there's actually teaching out there. It comes from more of a faith camp theology, health and wealth gospel. It's pretty perverted, you know, it's pretty messed up. It's, it's heretical, actually. But nonetheless, I used that on her this last week. I didn't actually, I didn't do that, but uh, I wouldn't say that. That would be very mean, but that would be very self-righteous, wouldn't it? Very self-righteous, elitist, holier-than-thou kind of a mindset or an attitude. And uh, I'm hoping that God will use this to bring a little bit more mercy to my wife because now she knows what I've gone through twice this last year through my sickness. And so maybe now, and I did say that to her last night. I said, well, maybe now you'll be more merciful to me when I'm sick. What'd you think of that? Huh? Think I scored points? She hasn't spoken to me since. I slept in my car last night. She would not let me back in the house. And, uh, and actually I didn't say that. Well, okay, maybe I did a little bit, but it was interesting uh, that when kind of the attitudes sometimes that we cop in dealing with issues in our lives. And uh, imagine in conflict, and, and by the way, this happened for <clears throat> a couple decades within our relationship. My wife and I have been married for about 33 years, going on 34. And in conflict, uh, typically there was always a good guy, bad guy. I was, guess who? No, I was the good guy. You guys said bad. No, I'm, I have got it all together. I am perfect in every way, please. Thank you. Yes, I am. And actually, you guys know that's not true, but oftentimes when I would approach my wife, I did it in a very condescending way, and I could usually uh, win the argument because I could out-talk her and I could spin it. And, and so it almost came off. So in conflict resolution, there was this good guy, bad guy kind of mindset, and... And typically, if I came off as a good guy, in reality, I was actually the bad guy because the way it ended, and she always felt that she was in wrong. In other words, it came off like this, that after we were working through the conflict, it was almost as if I was saying to her, if you could just get your act together, if you were perfect in every way just as I was, we would have a great marriage. If it wasn't for my wife, everything would be really great. And so there was this kind of this uh, attitude of superiority that was being expressed, and we didn't resolve a lot of conflict that way. You're not going to resolve any conflict. By the way, if, when you're in conflict and you come off with a superior attitude or an inferior attitude, you're, you're not going to be able to work through that conflict issue. And so what does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with this idea of Habakkuk. And by the way, let me just say this also, and I think it's another great example of this. The bipartisan political atmosphere in Washington currently and also... Let me say, when you listen to a lot of the talk radio show hosts, which are rampant in our society today, it is, it is always good guy, bad guy. It's never, hey, we're all bad guys. Let's see what we can do to work on this. And by the way, when you do the good guy, bad guy routine, which, as I said, the Bible says there are no good guys. There are no good guys. We all have sin in our life. And when we develop that kind of an attitude, not only... Are you not going to be able to resolve the conflict? 
And in doing that, you are attacking the person rather than, than the problem. But in doing that, you are becoming a part of the problem. And you are showing that you are not living in the reality of God's amazing grace. Okay, this is a long intro. We're going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to head into our text. So that's where I lost my time this morning in the first service, okay? But you've got to get this. You've got to understand this. That if you're dealing with conflict in a marriage, conflict in a home, conflict in a church, conflict in a country, if you ever cop an attitude of good guy, bad guy, you're not going to resolve that conflict. You're not going to ever resolve that conflict, and it's because you don't understand God's amazing grace. I don't care whether you're a believer or not. The Bible makes it very clear that everything we have, I am what I am by the grace of God, whether it be common grace, which is poured upon all mankind, or it is saving grace that comes to those who have put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything we have, our very breath, our heartbeats, everything about our lives is by God's grace. Everything. And so what happens is that we kind of develop this superiority kind of an attitude. And so therefore we have this attitude of entitlement. I deserve this and, and you owe me. And, and we go back and forth and, and I'm superior to you. I know more than you. And, uh, and that's a person that doesn't understand the grace of God. When you understand what God does for you each and every day by his grace... And what he has done for you for all eternity, his saving grace, you will not cop an attitude of entitlement, nor arrogance, superiority, or inferiority. You will have an attitude of forever, forever being indebted to God. And I can always tell when someone's beginning to understand that grace. They are forever. This is this unspeakable joy that permeates their lives. And um, see, when you look at the cross, I've got to remind you, some of you need to memorize this, actually, so that's why I say it over and over again. When you look at the cross, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. How could I ever come to my wife and be superior? Like, you get your act together and we'll have a great marriage. How pathetic is that? I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. And I come off like I've got it all together. Like somehow I achieved this right standing with God because of all my great works and who I am. I'm such a wonderful guy. But nor should there be not just towering, but no cowering. He loved me so much he wanted to die. He loved me so much he wanted to die. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. See, that strikes at the pride. It strikes at the fear. It creates this blessed self-forgetfulness. My heart becomes so filled up with God. Therefore, when I approach issues and conflicts, I don't attack the person. I attack the problem because I recognize I own part of the problem because I am sinful just like everybody else. And so I'll tell you what. You'll never get resolution to conflict issues in the home, in a church, in this country, as long as we're constantly pointing fingers across the aisle. Does that make sense? And so it's so, it's so critical that we understand that. Here's what it is. In front of the cross, it's level ground. It's level ground. And so grace, amazing grace, Gets rid of the pride, replaces it with humility. Gets rid of the fear, replaces it with confidence so that we can learn to speak the truth in love. Becoming a part of the the solution rather than part of the problem. And so Habakkuk is coming face to face with the living God. And he's complaining and saying, hey, those people are more wicked than us. I can't believe that you would use them to discipline us. And so what God does... Here in chapter 2, God deconstructs the Chaldeans to show us that there is a root of evil in every human heart that is the source of our problems that must be overcome by God's grace if we are going to be able to trust God in troubled times. That's the end of my intro. Okay? So now we're going to pray and we're going to dive deep into this. God's here today. He wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to you this morning. So let's pray. Father God, uh,
Father in heaven, if any of us were treated according to what we deserve, none of us could stand. And for us to even think that shows the wickedness and evil that is in our hearts that somehow we deserve this or that, some kind of an entitlement attitude. Through the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, in mercy, you don't give us what we deserve. And in grace, you give us what we don't deserve, fullness of life that is the byproduct of your abiding presence in our lives and the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. We owed a debt we couldn't pay, and you paid a debt you didn't owe for us. Reveal to us. This morning, the root of evil in every human heart, which is the source of our problems, and teach us how to uproot this evil in our own hearts by your grace, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at your notes here. We're going to read verses 4 through 20. And as I read through this, I want you to... uh, There's a couple verses I want you to read because in this darkness, it's a very dark chapter, but in this darkness, light shines bright. And there's some verses in there. God is almost kind of reminding us, I am there with you in that darkness. And that that light will dispel that darkness. I'll begin reading and then I'll ask you to read certain portions of this. It's quite lengthy. Verse 4, chapter 2, Habakkuk, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's talking about the Chaldeans who are going to come in and wipe out Judah, God's people. Let's read the next uh, part together, that second part of verse 4. Are you ready? One, two, three. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So he's making a contrast that if you want to be associated with God, this is how you do it. The righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And say, and there's going to be five woes. He's going to say woe. When the Bible says woe, it's saying you are in big trouble. This does not look good for you. This is what he's saying here. God's judgment is coming. This is what he's saying. Because of your wickedness, God is bringing judgment upon you. So it says, woe. It's a pretty heavy, heavy statement. Woe to him who, who gets evil gain from his house. So as he's... Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped way up ahead, didn't I? So woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, verse 6, for how long, and loads himself with pledges, verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him, who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. I was thinking lifestyles of the rich and famous right there. It's almost MTV Cribs. It's, it's, it's really descriptive as you work through that. Pretty interesting. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Here's the big verse. Here's the light that shines in the darkness. Let's read it together. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow! Unbelievable. I'll continue reading verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink 
yourself and show your uncircumcision, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Verse 17, he gets into some environmental sins here. He says, the violence done to Lebanon, literally the forest, will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast, the wild animals that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when, it makes, when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Last verse, let's read it together. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Very powerful verse. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's walk through this. We're going to just spend all of our time on the root of evil in every human heart. It tells us in Romans 3.23... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Every soul on this planet, every person on this planet, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. You were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. Your life is to be about God. And we know that God is most glorified in us when when we are most satisfied in Him. You are to find your deepest satisfaction in God. That's how you best bring glory to God. And yet, when you look on the landscape of American Christians... And others, we have done everything but that. We've made God a means to an end. And we add God to our life, to our pile of things we're doing, almost as as something uh, just to add to our list of things to do. And yet the Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. That's where we'll find our greatest satisfaction. And yet we've done everything but that. Now, you need to know this. You were created by God. I've already said that, but you were created by God, and your very breath, your very heart beats because of Him, because He is the source of life. You owe everything to Him, regardless of what you might think or say. You owe your life to Him. You owe your very existence to Him. The root of evil in every human heart. Chapter 2, God is describing the Chaldeans' murder and mayhem. But like bookends, we have root, the root of this wicked and evil fruit found in verses 4 through 5 at the front end and then towards the tail end, verses 18 through, through 19. Now, this is how it works within our hearts. If you dove deep into your heart, this is what goes on that would cause your heart to stray away from God, to, to make life about yourself rather than God. And the first one would be unbelief. Unbelief. In fact, I'll I'll just go through them. Unbelief, pride, idolatry. They all work almost kind of simultaneously, but it begins with unbelief. It's turning from satisfaction in God. Now, you'll notice this is the opposite of what he said in verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. So the opposite of that would be unbelief. Now, you need to understand this, that unbelief is not no belief. It's an alternate belief. Let me explain what I'm saying. If you're here, you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in Christianity, well, guess what? It doesn't mean you don't believe. It just means that you have an alternate belief system. You guys tracking with me? Because everybody believes. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody has some sort of creed to their life. Everybody has faith in something or someone. Otherwise, your life cannot exist. You were created by this this God of creation for you to find your greatest delight in Him. And so when you don't do that, you will put your greatest delight someplace else. You will believe about life in some form or fashion other than that. And that is an alternate belief system. So my question for you, and and this is often how I challenge people, because I have people all the time saying, I don't believe in Christianity. So I say, so what do you believe in? Well, I don't really believe anything. No, you do believe in something. Otherwise, you would... You would put a bullet in your head. You have meaning and purpose and significance and security for, from something other than Christ, what is it? What is it in? And, oh, by the way, 
Have you put your alternate belief system under the same scrutiny that you have put Christianity under? Most people haven't. Most people have committed intellectual suicide. Most people have not given it that much thought. Well, I just don't believe that. Well, why don't you believe that? Because I'm telling you, I was raised in a Pentecostal background where it tended to lean more towards the experiential. I loved it. But when I hit my teenage years, I began to see other people from other major cults and religions having similar experiences. Mormons burning in the bosom, Jehovah Witnesses, with their sense of conviction door to door. You know, from a lot of different... And I had to say, what is this? What is this about? And as I began to study it, I began to realize that, that it's, it's hard experience based on objective truth. What is the objective truth? And is that objective truth, is it, is it historical? Is it factual? <clears throat> is it evidential? Here's what I found. The more I studied the Christian faith, the more my faith began to soar. Because I began to realize that the Christian faith is historical, factual, and evidential. This is what I found. This is what most Christians find, too. If you talk to most Christians, you would say, Hey, I scrolled through the options, and it takes more faith to believe one of these options. Let's take one option, for instance, um, evolution, random chance, unlimited time. We're just kind of a big accidents here. It takes more faith to believe that than it does in the Christian faith. Because as I have studied... There is enough evidence tilting the scale of probability in favor of this man, God-man, God coming to this earth and revealing the Father and dying on a cross for you and I. There's plenty of, there's plenty of evidence tilting the scale towards probability. I also learned something else, too, is that though it did tilt the scale, and as I, as I scrolled through the options, I realized, wow, that doesn't carry much weight. There's not much glory in any of those things. And so it would actually require more faith for me to believe that than this. And, and as I begin to kind of reason with that, I also realized there's something else about the Christian faith that it was self-authenticating. That you can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to assurance. And so as I begin to make a commitment to this Jesus, this God-man, to the God of the Bible, things begin to take place in my life unlike anything I've ever experienced before. It was self-authenticating. Just like this, uh, the sun is self-authenticating in the fact that it's, it's hot and it's bright. All i got to do is take you out there and walk you out in the middle of the sun. And you're going to go, yeah, it's hot, it's bright. Woo! So is God that when you begin to taste of his love on the palate of your soul. And so it was this heart experience based on objective truth. And I begin to understand that this objective truth, man... There is a foundation to our faith. There is, a, there is credibility to our creed. There is a basis for our belief. And I also notice this, that most people don't have that kind of a foundation. If you really back them into a corner and begin to ask them questions. So you don't believe in Christianity. What is it that you believe? And what is the basis of that belief? And... Uh, they couldn't tell me. It was some flimsy book that they had read in Barnes & Noble or some kind of crazy thing about this or that. And I just thought, you've got to be kidding. You're basing your whole life and your eternity on something you read as a coincidence some afternoon drinking coffee in Star, uh, Starbucks or Barnes & Noble or, or Borders? It just seemed crazy to me. And so here's what happens, though, is that we have an adversary, and it tells us this in Genesis chapter 3 where you see the fall, guess where he attacks all of us? He attacks us trying to undermine the credibility of God's word. Remember what he said to Eve and Adam? He was, he was still there. He's kind of hiding out, hanging back. But he said, did God really say that? So this is, what, this is why it's so critical that you know this book. He will challenge you. God didn't say he'd take care of you in all circumstances. God didn't say that. Did he really say he'll never leave you or forsake you? Look at your circumstances. They're not, kind of, they're not measuring up. See, he will attack you right there in, in causing you to, to begin to question the credibility of God's words to you based on your circumstances. But then guess where he goes from there? You, you can study it right there in the third chapter of Genesis. If he can begin to undermine his word to you, did God really say... The next step is that he will begin to undermine God's credibility of his character. So it goes from word to character. 
Yeah, God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat of the tree, you'll be just like him. So the reason why we take paths oftentimes that are contrary to the Christian faith is because there's something working deep inside of us. It's called unbelief. And we're beginning to question the credibility of God's word to us, that God loves us. We were created for relationship with him as objects of his love. But we begin to question that. We question what his word says. And then we question his character. When we look at our circumstances, we go, wow, this just doesn't seem to measure up. And so we, we work through this. We, we, we struggle in our hearts thinking God's holding out on me. And so when you take a path that's outside of what God's word says, outside of what God wants you to do, in essence, it's unbelief working in your life. You think God's holding out on you. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. And so unbelief is an alternate belief system. And so my question for you, what is the object of your belief? If it's not Christ, it's something. And can it stand the scrutiny that you could put Christianity under? By the way, there's some guys out there that have written some phenomenal books on it. Both were atheists before they became Christians, trying to, to disclaim Christianity in some way, to undermine its credibility. And both of them became Christians as a result. Lee Strobel is one. He's written a number of books, and the other one is Josh McDowell. In fact, both of them would say, I remember actually, this is a quote from Josh McDowell. He said, for him to deny the evidence, the facts, the foundation of the Christian faith, he would have to commit intellectual suicide to deny it. Boom. That's how, how solid the Christian faith is. But here's what happens. When we get that unbelief working in our life, we begin to push off from God. It creates spiritual alienation, which immediately moves into a psychological alienation. That's your next word, pride. We turn from satisfaction in God to life is all about me and my glory. Life is all about me and my glory. Now you'll notice, keep your Bibles open because look at verse 4. This is where we get that. Look at verse 4. The first part he says, his soul is puffed up. Behold, his soul is puffed up. You know, the first thing I was thinking about was, I, I, was, I was thinking of this right here. Balloon. <laughs> Woo. That took the air out of me. You didn't know I had that much hot air, did you? Oh, you did? Yeah. My wife's not here, so you're taking her place this morning, huh? You say, yep. Yeah. soul is puffed up. My soul is puffed up. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about, and this is what's interesting about, uh, about pride. You know, life is all about me and my glory. The human ego is empty at the center, no matter how big and pretty it might be. So we have spiritual alienation happening, which leads to a psychological alienation deep within our heart. So we begin to build our life on anything and everything other than God. It looks pretty. Wow, man, you got a nice home. That's a cool car you're driving. Wow, nice looking clothes. Looks good. You build your life maybe even on the praise of people. You build it on the praise of people. And guess what? The first little bit of criticism you get. Because anything that can be inflated like that can be easily deflated. You know, it's interesting with this downturned economy, I've run across a lot of people, boy, they had some nice homes and cars and making big paychecks. See my car? I'm looking pretty good. I got one hot car and got a cool home and cabin in the mountains. By the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when we build our sense of we've got this puffed up sense of identity that's based on that, that life becomes all about me and my glory. The human ego is empty at the center no matter how big and pretty it might look. I've known a lot of guys with a lot of money. And you know what? They were feeling pretty high on life until this downturned economy and then they begin to realize, wait a minute. It was more than just money. It was my identity. 
It was my security. It was my significance. And see, that's what we do. And that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the Babylonians. He's saying their souls, they're puffed up. Look at verse 5. He says, an arrogant man who is never at rest. There's a restlessness constantly trying to fill up that emptiness inside. Looks good on the outside, empty on the inside, regardless of how much stuff you try to accumulate or accomplish or achieve. It doesn't matter. You can't fill that up because you are spiritually alienated. Therefore, you will forever be psychologically alienated. He goes on. And he talks about this. He says, uh, verse 16, you get this idea. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, look what he's saying here. Verse 16, he's talking about the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. He's saying, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. So they're trying to fill their glory up. They're trying to clothe themselves with glory. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. So this sense of significance that I'm something. I matter. My life matters. And they're doing it by by bloodshed, by going into these countries and taking them over. And, uh, and this is what he says in verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. In other words, it's going to end. Yeah, it's, it's inflated right now, but it's going to easily be deflated just that fast. He says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Your hearts are a long ways from God. It's a metaphor. He says, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you. He's talking about the judgment of God. And utter shame will come upon your glory. It's short-lived. That's pride. Philippians 2, 3. We went through this in our study on Philippians. And it says, Do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. So let me ask you this. With the people within your own home, within your neighborhood, within your small group, within this church, within the people that you work around, do you look after their interest and consider them to be more significant than yourself? In other words, do you put as much thought, emotion, and volition, action, into meeting their needs and taking care of them as you do your own? No, you don't. Neither do I. None of us do. And yet that's what the Christian life is about. Because we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and then love our neighbor as ourselves. But you know what? For the most part, most of us are preoccupied with self because though we have made a commitment to Christ, we don't live in the reality of the reality. We don't live in the middle of the reality of who he is and what he has said about us. Therefore, we have this spiritual alienation and this psychological alienation constantly battling and working within our own hearts. And so when he says this, he says this, do nothing out of rivalry. The word means desire to promote oneself. And conceit, the word for conceit literally means vain glory. Empty, the word vain means empty glory. Empty of glory. Empty of glory. We promote ourselves in direct proportion to being empty of glory. We so desperately want to have meaning and purpose in our life. And so we go to anything and everything other than to God. I told you the story when I was in Tucson not too long ago. These uh, gangbangers, lowriders wanted to take me on. So I shot them up. Pulled out my gun, shot out their tires, backed them down. Nancy went over there and whipped them. Now, actually I ignored them and just kept going and they tried to challenge me and I just kept ignoring them and took another path home. There was a time in my life I was empty of glory and I had this attitude. like, how dare you stand up to me? I'll take you on, buddy boy, whoever you are. Of course, my wife would always be over there going, don't look at him, don't look at him, don't look at him. And I said, I don't, I'll look at him if I want to. You know, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever had that kind of an experience. Maybe it's just me. Whew. Maybe I go around and pick fights. But, but it's interesting. Okay, one guy, you and I, man. We'll talk about this later, huh? He's a police officer, though, so you can do that. I'll take care of them. There you go. Maybe I ought to have you with me next time I do that. Go over there and arrest them. But, uh, but it was interesting, and, and we, when we studied that, and I shared that story a little bit with you, is that the reason why people do that is because they're empty of glory. Someone bumps you in the hallway, tries to be hard guy with you, they're empty of glory. 
People try to promote themselves in direct proportion to the emptiness that they have inside of themselves. That's why he says this. I mean, that's why in this verse he says, Do nothing from rivalry and conceit, desire to promote oneself, conceit, glory hungry, but in humility consider, but you got to read the whole context. The whole context is about, man, you better keep your heart filled up with who God is and what God says about you. Otherwise, you're going to respond with with this uh, rivalry and conceit in your life. So you got, so this is what's working in our hearts. So you got unbelief. Ah, God's holding out on me. You know what? I think I can do better than this. I'm going to start taking these other paths. See, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And typically sin is, a, is this idea. It's, it's usually a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. Taking life into our own hands. And so it moves right to idolatry. That's your next, next fill in the blank. I went so long on that front end this morning with that first service. I got to make sure that I don't run out of time here. We'll finish up after this, okay? Believe me. And this is, so this goes from turning from satisfaction in God, life is all about me and my glory, to anything more important to you than God. That's, that's idolatry. Look what he says in verse 4. He said, it is not upright within them. So he's talking about the Babylonians. When our heart is not right within us, it's because we begin to give our hearts to anything and everything more so than God. Verses 18 through 19, he really unpacks this whole idea of idolatry. He says, what prophet is an idol? And then he moves on and and gives some really interesting things about idolatry. Romans 1, 25 through 26 tells us basically, and it's in a nutshell, it says what we do is that we... uh, We exchange the truth of God for a lie. What is the truth of God? Listen to me. Here's the truth of God. He will satisfy your deepest needs. Everybody look up here. Here's the truth of God. The truth of God is that he will satisfy your deepest needs only in him. Only in him will he fill your heart up with beauty and glory and significance and security and peace and joy and love, unlike you have ever, ever experienced before in anything that you have encountered on this planet Earth. But we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator. So it goes unbelief, pride. Hey, I can do this on my own, man. And we make life about ourselves, and then we begin to replace God with something in creation. Anything that occupies the place of God in your life, that's an idol. It is something preeminent, prominent, center of your life, the most important thing in your life. It gives you identity, meaning, purpose, value, love, significance, security, anything other than God. And uh, so let me go through some lists here. And these lists will be online. Uh, Karen said that she was going to put them online if you'll download and go to the to the message site with our notes. We'll put our, our growing notes on there a lot. She'll put this list, but let's go through this list. Here's the idols that we have in our society. This is just a short list. Oh, by the way, before I do that, let me read to you a couple quotes. Uh, this is from his book, which uh, it's a book that I would highly recommend. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Listen to what he says here. I'll just read one. There's a number. He gives a number of uh, personalities, people in our society that have this sense of struggle within. Uh, first, this is the fourth chapter, The Seduction of Success. Pop legend Madonna describes the seduction of success in her own words. Listen to what he says as he's quoting her. I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me pushing me because even though I've become somebody I still have to prove that I'm somebody my struggle has never ended and it probably never will and it won't as long as you are spiritually alienated from God you will have psychological alienation and it will affect how you relate to people in this social realm you'll actually have social alienation listen to what the ethicist 
Lewis Smedes has to say. He says, pride in the spiritual sense is a refusal for God to be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on one's resources. And that is the great illusion. That's the delusional fantasy of all fantasies. That's the cosmic put on. It's the fantasy that we can make it as masters of our own lives. And that fantasy leaves us empty, restless on on the center. And so we are attacked by demons of fear and anxiety. And we learn to swagger and bluff. And we look everywhere for people to use to buttress our shaky ego that this pride has created. Now, every new situation calls for this question, what can I get out of this situation to support my ego for power and applause? And every time you meet a new person in your heart of hearts, you say, unconsciously perhaps, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I am better than others? All of this is because we are empty at the center. That's all of us. Unbelief, pride, idolatry. Here's the list of idols. This is a short list, by the way. I, would, I think I'll probably hit everybody here, though. There's the idol of religion. Earning and achieving right standing with God through rules, rituals, moral conformity, rightness of doctrine, confusing non-essential with essential doctrine, elitist, elitism in gifts and ministry. And, and oftentimes we focus more on form. I'll have to talk to you about that sometime. Some people are really put off at the fact that I wear shorts in here. And that would almost come off a little bit, excuse me, that you're religious, okay? Because what you should be more concerned about is whether or not we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and help people to connect with Jesus. And so that's just, that's just a little side note just to let you know because we have people, I have people from time to time that, that they're just greatly offended. And I immediately know kind of where they're coming from. There's some sort of a religious thing that's going on within them. And uh, especially if they haven't really hung out with us to find out really what is the heart of what's going on here. Then there's this. This is a big one. This is the leisure one. I'll try not to comment about each one of these. We'll be here all day. But... But here's the, the leisure one, and this is very common in the Southwest. I mean, we have great weather here for the most part. Even if it's 100 out, we still get out. If it's 110, we still get out. But life is about having this kind of pleasure experience, hunting, fishing, golfing, four-wheeling, season ticket holders, barbecue, backyard barbecues, swimming pools, vacations, camping, sports teams uh, with both children and adults. Listen, listen to me. There's nothing wrong with any of this. But when it becomes the focus of your life, the center of your life, to the neglect of the spiritual well-being, your spiritual well-being, and your kid's spiritual well-being, then it is idolatry. And you are doomed. You have planted seeds of destruction within your life because there's something other than God at the center of your life. Workaholism, that's me. Work becomes the thing you live for to be productive and useful or to feel successful and powerful. Codependency, because you need to feel needed, you stay in unhealthy relationships with perennially needy individuals. It can work both ways. You can be the enabler or you can be the one that's receiving the enablement. And so it kind of works both ways with that. Then there's beauty and image. This can have various forms including eating disorders and excessive time, effort, and concern about appearance. Pornography would be part of that. Then you've got the romance idol. This is not the same as pure sexual gratification. You live for crushes or for someone to love you. Family is a big idol among conservatives. This idolatry has many variations. Your children's prospects and happiness become the most important thing. Athletics over spiritual well-being. This is what never ceases to amaze me. The parents are more concerned about the athleticism of their child than the spiritual condition of their heart. It just blows me away. All the athleticism in the world will not help your child like knowing the creator of the universe and living for his glory. Excuse me for raising my voice at that one. But it's so prevalent in our society today. I see people take their kids, nothing wrong with any of these things, but they become the most important thing in their lives. It drives their lives. It's idolatry. It will ruin their lives and their kids' lives in the end. 
if Christ is not. And see, we, Christ has to be more than just a part. Just add him to your life. You'll be a successful football player if Jesus is part of your life. That's a load of, you know what? That's ridiculous that people would even say that. That's, that's an insult to the God of creation. That we would even, we would try to bring him along somehow that he's going to make you more successful in business or anything. That's a form of idolatry. He is way too beautiful. He's way too majestic. He is way beyond our wildest dreams and, and crazy notions. When you begin to understand who God is, all of that stuff falls by the wayside. The only reason why we chase all this stuff is because we're disconnected from the living God. Our hearts long for him and we just don't see it. And so we substitute him with all this stuff. Well, we've got more idolatry in America today than, than most third world countries that, bite, that bow down to idols and all these other things. It is amazing. And then, um, oh, let me keep going with family, okay? I, was, I, I got on a soapbox on that one there. Meeting your parents' expectations become the most important thing. Getting married or having a perfect marriage becomes the most important thing. And then you got the money. This is how it works in my home. Uh, this idolatry has many variations. Here's the two. Here's mine is more of having and saving lots of money may be your security, the, the, the main way you feel safe in this world. So mine is that I'm a saver. But guess what my wife is? She's a spender. She would fit into the next category. Having and spending lots of money may be the way of feeling significant, important, nice possessions, car, home, clothes. So, so all of us tend to gravitate towards one or the other. You're either a spender or you're a saver. And it's usually based on some form of security or significance that drives your life. And then perfectionism. Oh, that's mine too. Praise God. Perfectionism in general. You live to complete, you, you, you live to keep complete control of your life. I mean, you talk about perpetual dissatisfaction. You will never be satisfied trying to find your satisfaction in, in performance or the approval of others. And then you got social cultural idols. Woo, it gets even better. Fascism makes an idol of one's race or nationality. I'm acceptable because I am of this race rather than getting my identity as a child of God. Or, and this leads to, of course, racism. And then you got communism, makes an idol of the state. Government will solve all problems rather than God. Marx said everything is political and all problems are political, economic ones rather than spiritual ones. And then you got populism, pop. Populism makes an idol out of public opinion and majority rule rather than what God says is right. Don't you get sick of the, the news media always going and getting an interview with somebody on the street? Who cares? My goodness sakes. Let's, let's see where the wind is blowing so we can get on that bandwagon. By the way, regardless of what persuasion you are both sides of the aisle whether it be democrat or republican are wrong when they want to point across the aisle there's no grace in any of that because if you read the the stuff out there you know, one would say oh bigger government bigger government the other one smaller government smaller government well you're both wrong because you're both reductionistic and you're too simplistic and our problem is sin and only by god's grace can we find healing it's not good guy bad guy and so i, I think it's important that we understand that Woo, this message has got me fired up this morning. My goodness sakes. I, okay, thank you, Jesus. He's been speaking to me big time. Capitalism makes an idol out of the free market. Like communism, it sees all of our problems as economic ones, all issues in cost-benefit terms and all things, even people as commodities. And then you got multiculturalism. It's a part of our, you know, our culture too. It makes one, one's ethnic group or culture an absolute value, and which causes this. There are no absolute standards by which to judge then. It creates this major confusion. And then you got enlightenment. Humanism makes an idol of reason and scientific investigation. Science has an answer for everything and reason will open all doors. You got individualism, which is part of our culture, makes an idol out of individual freedom. Nothing must curb the individual's freedom to choose whatever he or she wants to be happy. Even if it's killing babies in your womb, your happiness is utmost. I mean, that's, that's our society. Traditionalism makes the family and tradition an idol. Traditional cultures see the rights 
of individuals as unimportant compared to the name and the interest of the family and tribe. Woo! And that's just a short list. Now, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go through the list of idols, then I'm going to make some just final comments. So we're going to have our band come back up, and they're going to lead us in that really powerful song that they're teaching us. My heart, my soul longs for you, because that's what all this is saying. Every bit of this is saying, our heart longs for him. All of the turmoil that's going on around us and in our own lives, all the conflict, all of that, our heart longs for him. That's what you need more than anything. Let me give you a list. If that didn't zing you, this will. What controls most of your thoughts and feelings? When I began to get in touch with that, I was so appalled and realized I am wicked and sinful. And it wasn't like it was a bad thing, but it was good things that had been, ultimate, you know, had been elevated to an ultimate thing. It was work and marriage and kids and all these things. And that was what dominated my life. Rather than the beauty and the glory of Jesus. I'll tell you what, most people right here are not even in touch with what's going on in their thoughts and feelings. Because we got too much music, too much stuff going on. In our technologically advanced society, we just keep so much noise in our, in our lives. We can't even hear God. We can't even hear ourselves. We can't hear what's going on. And God wants to speak to us. And there's nothing that will satisfy you like he will. Here's the next one. What motivates the things that you do? Why did you come to church today? What are you most afraid of? What brings the highest amount of frustration and anger into your life? Ooh, that's what I need to ask right now. <laughs> what is the one thing that can change your mood in a second? I've got, I found myself getting mad at things that, what the heck, I am so selfish and self-centered. I go off on the stupidest things sometimes. Just fire me up. And then I look back on it and go, what the heck was that about? What would your friends say is your favorite topic of conversation? What are some things you think you could never live without. What brings you solace, comfort, support, relief? What do you yearn for? What is one thing you wish God would do? I, this last week, with my wife being sick, you know, um, I was kind of running around. I, I rely on her pretty heavily. And there's just a lot of other things happening in my life. I was just wrecked. I had a day, one of those, I just had a wrecked day. And I just felt, ah. Oh. And I went into my closet, prayer closet. I spent just a few moments with the living God. And I had an encounter with him that so refueled me. It was unbelievable. I, I couldn't even describe it to you. And I realized at that moment, my soul longs for you. And I cried out like that to him. And he met me right there. He energized me. Here's the thing about idolatry. We all do it. That if you fail your idol, your idol will never, ever forgive you. If it's money and you fail it, you don't get that money that you think you need to have all the glory so you can feel good about yourself, it will never forgive you. It is completely unforgiving. And even if you do get it, it is unfulfilling. But only Jesus, you can fail him time and time again, and he will always forgive you. The cross. And when you get him, you will never, ever be more satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was beaten bloody, the Son of God, for you and I. And, and too often we take this whole church thing kind of casually, cavalier. He was beaten, he was bludgeoned bloody for you. Nails were pierced in his hands, thorns on his head, pierced in the side. And he did that because he loves you. And that's the glory we need. That he values us. That's our sense of significance and security right there. And so our prayer this morning is this song. My heart longs for you. My soul longs for you. It's Psalm 63. We don't follow him because he makes life better. We follow him because he's better than life. 
my soul longs for you. Let's sing it. Would you stand with us? Make this your heart cry this morning. That's good stuff, huh? Praise God. Praise God. God is good. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Be satisfied in Him. I love you guys a lot. I apologize for taking so much time this morning, but uh, praise God, huh? Praise God. Have a great week.